Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, it is Sunday the 11th of March and this is The Naked Scientists. With me, I'm Ben Valsler and I'll be joined this week by Chris Smith. This week we're looking at sensors and sensor technology. We'll be finding out how networks of sensors can tell us what's happening in the soil and in the atmosphere around an airport, even down to seeing when an individual plane takes off. We'll also find out how to design instruments that can delve into the tiny spaces inside a jet engine. And I'll be joining Ben to look at this week's science news, including how eating fruit and veg can change the colour of your face and why words feel better if you type them with your right hand. So if you would like to get in touch with any questions or any comments for us, you can tweet at Naked Scientists, comment online at facebook.com slash thenakedscientists or drop us an email. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. Sensors are essential for our understanding of the environment around us. Weather stations, for example, have been collecting data on wind speed, rainfall, pressure and humidity around the world since at least the 1940s. And now a new project led by University of Cambridge with a host of university and industry partners and funded by the Natural Environment Research Council seeks to deploy a network of sensors around Heathrow Airport in order to study the atmosphere with unprecedented resolution. I met Dr Ick Mead from Cambridge University to find out what it is that they hope to learn. This project is really looking at urban air quality in the first instance, and then we're trying to tie that into specific science questions within that, specific airport questions such as the dispersion of the buoyant aircraft plume or distribution of sources around an airport. What does it do if you increase the use of one side of the airport versus another, these kinds of things? One of the beauties of this kind of network is that you can disperse it over a wide area in a fairly dense mode so get a lot more information than you would actually need to maybe answer that particular question so you can tie it into other issues as well around it. Why airports in particular? Why is an airport more interesting than, say, a city? This project is built on previous projects looking at urban and rural concentrations in towns and cities in the UK and abroad. So we've deployed in Cambridge, London, Kuala Lumpur, Lagos. The idea being that we want to understand what's happening in that environment for those particular questions. For Heathrow Airport, you, you have a rather unique situation is that you have a very large airport surrounded by a very large city and we need to understand what's happening before the airport as things get into the airport and what the outflow is from the airport and how that affects the wider area. So what is it that you're actually sensing? What are you picking up? Broadly speaking, we're looking at a number of gas phase pollutant species such as CO, NO, SO2, ozone, but we're also looking at carbon dioxide, speciated particulates and the wind speed and direction for that particular measurement site. What we can do with that is really understand how the pollutants are moving through our environment, directly tied to where we're making the measurements, as opposed to a bulk, the wind speed is in in, in this number of knots and in this direction, and then crudely linking it. So each one of your sensors is obviously capable of measuring a, a large number of different factors. Why do you need to have them in this network? What's important about the structure of the network? Actually, the whole thing is, is a very modular system in as much as 
it's a collection of sensors in one sensor, inverted commas, node. Those nodes are then put out in a dense network. The key to the network is that we can then start to understand at an appropriate granularity in time and space the things that we're trying to measure. We can do lots of interesting things with dense networks we couldn't necessarily do with more dispersed networks. For example, um, the validity of, of the data we're collecting is essentially tied into its calibration. If we have a dense network, you can then roll out a calibration to very specific nodes, and then they will tell you a lot, or you can infer the behavior of nearby nodes. So you can take your, your study for validation across the network without actually having to maybe go to all sites and calibrate them in the traditional way, although we will be doing that for some of them. So you could, for example, if you have one node in between two others and it doesn't quite agree, you know that that one needs calibrating differently because presumably there will be a gradient across those three. Oh, oh, of course. I mean, depending on your local sources, it could quite correctly be varying differently to the ones around it. However, if you know that site A to site C is roughly um, the same source pattern and then site B is in between, you should be able to understand what's happening in site B using site A and C. What sort of density are we talking about? How regularly spaced actually are these sensors? It's an irregular network. I mean, in part, we have to be practical. We can't just turn up to an airport and say, I want to put a sensor on a lamppost here, and it might be in the middle of a runway. What we're going to be doing is locating a number of sensors around the periphery of the airport, and then also dispersed within the airport at strategic points, including on the um, ATC main tower, so we get a vertical transect as well. Put it into context, across the UK, there's about 120, 125 static monitoring sites used for air quality as part of the main DEFRA AURN monitoring network. Um, We're going to be putting 50-plus sensors across Heathrow alone. So that's clearly far more dense than than what's gone before it. Presumably these are all capable of of talking to each other and there are ways to collect the information remotely. You don't need to send somebody to every single sensor to pick up its data. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I remember when I first started, if you put a sensor out, you had to go and collect the data from it with a cable. Um, These sensors will be collecting data autonomously and then sending it to a remote server at two hourly intervals, I think, is the current plan. The idea being that we have all that data coming in semi-real-time to us, so we can start our analysis on day two of deployment, and you can really start to understand what's happening. And then you can actually look at your network and say, well, this sensor is redundant here, maybe we should move it there, or this is an area of particular interest, we're looking at a particular question, let's see if we can put a few more sensors there, augment the network, as well as tie it into the existing network, because they, they they do work together. Our sensors are not as intrinsically sensitive as the traditional static sites, but they more than make up for that in their mobility and their ability to be put out as these dense networks. It's all about the appropriate scales of measuring for the particular species in question. So do you have to design very specific sensors in order to to play this multifaceted role of picking up lots of different things and communicating it and acting as part of a network? I suppose what we've done is taken advances in various technologies and put them together into a sensor node. So within that upcoming deployment, what we have are a series of electrochemical sensors, which were originally designed for much higher concentrations in, in the industrial sphere. And we've started to work with those. They're now coming down, and they're just at the point where they're sensitive and selective enough for this kind of application. We also have a, a photoionization detector. Um, there's a small folded path um, spectroscopic device looking at CO2 and a sonic anemometer for our wind speed and direction. Putting all these things together and the intelligence needed on board to control all these constituent parts is is a large part of the network design. Then how to deal with all that data afterwards becomes 
an even larger part. It seems appropriate that you're putting this at an airport because presumably you face some of the same challenges as the people who build and design aeroplanes where they have to miniaturise and condense all of their sensing equipment as well. We do face constraints on things like power and weight. However, they're not quite as acute in as much as it's not going to cost us more in fuel, for example, to carry a, a larger power pack. But in terms of practicality of a network, you have to take into account the operation and the lifetime of the network. You have to understand that it's going to take a certain amount of power. Are you going to be able to scavenge power from local sources? Do you have to put power there for it, i.e. a big battery? You, you are under a series of constraints regarding how often you can send data, for example, because switching on an antenna takes quite a lot of power, and each one of these things essentially has a, a mobile phone on a chip on board internally. So you have to control how much power you're using, and then you have to think about how much data you're sending, the costs associated. These things snowball somewhat. As with all things, they end up costing far more than you originally thought. That was Ikmead from Cambridge University's Sensor Networks for Air Quality, or SNAC, Heathrow Project. Sensor networks can be deployed in a host of locations to shed some light on how systems change over time. Dr Anna Verhoof from the University of Reading is using a similar system, very similar in fact to Snack Heathrow, in order to better understand the relationship between plants, soil and the atmosphere. And Anna joins us now. So Anna, we've just heard about how we're hoping to learn about the environment of an airport. But what are you hoping to learn with looking at at soil and moisture and the atmosphere? Uh, we're actually still testing our wireless sensor network, but it will be installed in the in the Thames uh, floodplain north of Oxford. And this area is called Yarnton Meads. It's actually a site of special scientific interest. It's an ancient hay meadow, and uh, research began in this area many decades ago. But because floodplains are a very valuable resource, here we have growing a very rare plant species, up to 40 species per square meter, and also these floodplains perform key ecosystem services such as flood storage and the retention of river sediments. So it's very important that we improve our understanding of these very rare areas because there's actually only 1,500 hectares left of this unique habitat in the, uh, in the UK. So we're really aiming here to, to measure soil moisture and we're measuring soil temperature because what's happening in these floodplains, the soil moisture content, for example, will, will vary spatially at a very high scale. So if we, let's say, stand in one part of the field, if we take 10 steps, we could actually find an area that's much wetter because here we don't just have the river water overbanking, we actually have the river water or the groundwater rather rising and in certain areas where the microtopography is, is slightly different we will have plants growing that that have their roots in slightly wetter areas for example. So we don't have just the same species growing all over the field, we have areas where we have wet loving species and areas where we have species that like their roots slightly drier. So you said that this has been an area of research for a while. Before we started developing sensor networks, how were we studying it? What tricks were we using? Uh, yes, yeah, so people have been studying this area because there's some gravel pits at the north of these meads and people were worried that with the extraction of gravel that the groundwater would actually change. Uh, so they were worried it would drop and therefore that some species would actually disappear. So um, many ins or various institutes and also botanists from the Open un um, University started to look at this site and they 
well, as we still do, we would look at the species, so we would quantify how, how many species we have. But also, in the past, they would put one or two data loggers in this field and measure some moisture. Maybe they would come back weekly, uh, and they still come back monthly, for example, to measure uh, groundwater levels. But now we want to measure this at a at a much wider spatio-temporal scale so that we can measure every half hour so that when we have a flood or when the groundwater does come up after a heavy rainstorm, we're actually measuring it and we can see what's what's happening. Presumably, as it's an area of um, specific scientific interest, you can't just go around, dig a hole in which to put your sensor and then <laughs> dig another 10 holes for another 10 sensors. Um, you must need to adapt them to be non-invasive as it were yes so this is where the the real special challenge is for our project for our, what we call fuse project floodplain underground centers and the key is really in the word underground we try to keep our centers obviously because we're measuring soil variables but also our nodes our our little signal transmitters we're trying to keep those or we want to keep those and we need to keep those underground because we don't want visitors tripping over it. Uh, we also have cattle grazing here during certain times of the year. And because this is a hay meadow, there will be harvesting happening in the middle of summer and we can't have the harvesting vehicles driving over our, our nodes. So we, we have to challenge that we need to get the signal from the senders and from these nodes out through the soil. And this is actually very hard because radio signals don't travel at all well through soil, especially when the soil is wet and when it has a lot of clay in it. So we've really chosen the, the most difficult site you could think of. <laughs> it's a big challenge, but we have some very good scientists from Imperial College who will be dealing with this problem with our help. I assume you can't just essentially turn up the gain, as it were, just make them more powerful in order to get that bit further. This is something we can do. So we're trying out uh, different frequencies. They have all kinds of plans up their sleeves. One problem we obviously face is actually battery power because uh, some of these sensors actually need some power before they can operate. So if we want to keep those sensors underground for, let's say, a year or two, this is a big challenge to keep those batteries going. And once you start collecting the data, so once you get this regular update, this near real-time input on a high resolution from yes. these floodplains, what can you start to do with that data? Yes, so so other than just looking at this data and studying how, for example, soil moisture content varies over the site, and we're hoping to have about 50 nodes placed over the field, we're also going to incorporate this data into a environmental model where we describe plant and, and soil processes through mathematical equations. But at the same time, we're going to pull in into that model uh, high-resolution earth observation data so that we can not just work out what's happening at these 50 subsites over our field where we have our sensors, but actually we can start to upscale with these earth observation data that may go down to about half a meter resolution. We can actually try to then make a map of what's happening to the to the vegetation, how healthy it is, whether it is water stress or probably air stress that it's actually too wet. So we can really start to work that out from a combination of remote sensing data, model data, and these in-situ wireless sensor network data. And when do you expect that you'll have all of your tests done? When are you actually going to roll it out? Well, we're, we're doing, we, we have done some tests and we're going to do more tests in, in April. So hopefully at the 
well, let's say the middle of summer, the end of summer, we will have some notes in and, we'll, and we will be testing it. The project started um, for some of us last April, so it's now nearly one, one year in, but uh, the Imperial College team actually started slightly later with, with some of their scientists working on this problem. So I would say we have uh, another three or four months before we, we have something happening. Well, we look forward to uh, yes. get, getting you back on the show to, to tell us what you've been finding. Certainly. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Excellent. Thank you very much. That's Anna Verhoof from Reading University. She'll be with us for the rest of the show. So if you'd like to get in touch, you can tweet at Naked Scientists or comment on our Facebook page. That's at facebook.com slash The Naked Scientists or drop an email to chris at thenakedscientists.com. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler. We'll be returning to our topic of sensors and sensibility shortly, but first I'm joined by Chris Smith for a look at this week's science headlines. Chris, the first one I've spotted is that gut bugs appear to promote blood vessel growth, and this was published in the journal Nature this week. New research now identifies how this happens and it offers potential new targets for treating intestinal diseases and obesity. Now, as we know, there are more bacterial cells in your body than there are human cells, but they are not mere passengers or even parasites. Healthy intestinal flora helps to educate the immune system and it plays an important role in vitamin production and absorption of nutrients. The inside of the intestine is lined with things called villi. These are protrusions that increase the surface area and therefore the amount of nutrients that can be absorbed. When mice are bred in germ-free environments, and so they have no bacteria in their gut, these villi are very long and very narrow. But when you introduce bacteria, this causes the villi to become significantly wider and it increases the density of blood vessels nearby. Now, Frederick Backhead at the University of Gothenburg and colleagues in Sweden and Germany have identified the three factors that seem to be responsible for this effect. There's tissue factor, there's protease-activated receptor 1, and angiopoietin 1, all of which are known to be involved in blood vessel creation and proliferation. Do they say, Ben, whether those chemicals come out of the bacteria or they come out of the local tissue in response to the bacteria? Well, these are proteins that are always present. They are definitely known to be involved in blood vessel creation in tumours, for example. They make up a, a normal pathway. What happens in the presence of bacteria is that a sugar molecule is attached to the surface of the tissue factor, which then causes it to migrate to the surface of the cell, where it signals to all the other factors to start making blood vessels. So that increases the density of local blood vessels, and it alters the amount of nutrient that can be absorbed across the intestine wall. Do they think that the extra blood vessels are there because the body senses the fact that there is uh, a potential threat in the form of these microorganisms and if you have a lot of blood vessels you can bring in lots of immune things like antibodies and cells to fight off a threat or is there something else that they speculate that the blood vessels are doing? Well, previous research has shown that the presence of bacteria here does educate the immune system. So there's definitely an interaction going on between the immune system and this bacteria. But also they are friendly bacteria that are sort of immune privileged. They don't get the same response that pathogenic bacteria would. So exactly why the extra blood vessels are there is quite hard to say at this moment. It could be because of the immunogenic effects of the bacteria. It could be because the bacteria do alter the way that we break down food. So 
just in in itself, the presence of them will change the way that we need to absorb it. So exactly what the cause and effect is, I think, is still a little bit unclear. But intriguingly, there are lots of diseases which are associated with problems with the bowel wall. So if they understand how to manipulate the blood supply to the bowel wall, you could potentially make the bowel wall heal itself better or not end up in these inflamed states in the future. Yes, indeed. And it could also be a treatment for obesity, for example, where you want to actually modulate how much of certain nutrients are being absorbed across the intestinal wall. Professor Backhead himself acknowledged that this is only a first step towards treatment, though. He said it will take time before the results can be applied in a clinical context and converted into new therapies. But our discovery is exciting and is a result of fundamental basic research, which teaches us a great deal about how we live in cooperation with the normal gut microbiota. Well, that's food for thought, isn't it, if ever I heard of an example. Speaking of which, have you had your five-day... Oh, I don't think I have today. I've been really very busy. My dinner was basically hummus and bread. Uh, I think hummus might count. It is made of chickpeas, but no, I don't think I've had all five. But what about in the past? Because the evidence is that scientists could now tell whether or not you have had your five a day or indeed how much fruit and veg ration you have been eating recently. Because there's a paper this week, it's in the journal PLOS One. It's by researchers at St Andrews University in Scotland, Ross Whitehead and his colleagues. And what they did was to speculate that it would be possible from the looking at the colour of people's skin to work out whether they were eating enough carotenoids. These are the antioxidants that are in fruits and vegetables, including beta-carotene, the chemical that makes carrots go orange. So what they did was to recruit 100 students, and they first of all turfed out loads of them that had a Jordan-esque fake tan covering all over, uh, and also those that had a love affair with lipstick and things like that. So that left them with a core group of 35 individuals with fairly natural skin covering, most of them Caucasian. And they recruited these individuals. They asked them to keep an accurate diary of how many portions of fruit and vegetables they're eating. And I think one of the gobsmacking discoveries of this piece of research is that these students, students in Scotland, Scotland, were eating 3.41 portions of fruit and vegetables a day, allegedly. I mean, most people in Scotland eat about one portion a year. Once they'd established what these kids were eating, they then took photos of their face and other bits of their skin surface from their body. And they then asked them to come back at three weeks and six weeks. And they repeated the photographic analysis, and they then took those photographs away and analysed them for colour. And what they were attempting to do was to see if there were any trends which were implicit to the changes in colour in the skin and were also present in the reports from the students of what they had been eating in terms of fruit and vegetables. So was there an increase in, say, an individual's intake on one occasion, and did that marry up with an increase in skin colour? And amazingly, they did find a strong correlation. There was a relationship between how many portions of fruit and veg they increased in their diet or decreased in their diet, and yellowness or redness in the skin picked up by the camera. But the thing is, it's one thing to say, well, an expensive camera can see this, but what about other humans? Because we know that animals use these same molecules, carotenoids, to signal to each other. Birds use it, fish use it, and many other species colour their skin. So will humans be the same? So to work out whether that was the case, they then do another very clever experiment. They take a series of faces, they use four, and they duplicate the picture 22 times and add increments of yellowness to each of the faces in turn over the 22-point scale. This corresponds to an increase in coloration that you would get, based on their first study, of eating an extra five and a half portions of fruit and vegetables a day. They then show 
these pictures in a pairwise fashion to a second group of volunteers. They present one picture at one end of the scale, i.e. the most yellow, next door to the same face in the least yellow state, and they ask them which one looks the most healthy. And they repeat this, and every time they get it right, then they move the two faces closer together on the colour scale. And incredibly, this shows that individuals were able to discriminate 1.89 portions of fruit and vegetables every day. So this suggests that we are sensitive to the colour changes in skin induced by eating healthy diet and that just like animals that probably use coloration secondary to carotenoids which come into the body from diet as an index of health and fitness, we may actually be doing exactly the same thing and we're sizing up potential partners based on how ruddy their complexion is and assuming that's because they're eating lots of tomatoes and other healthy things and not loads of whiskey. So did they look at the sorts of vegetables that people were eating? Because presumably there will be a different colour palette from different vegetables. If you're eating lots of kale and lots of lettuce and lots of spinach, then surely that will give you different colours from eating lots of carrots and tomatoes. Well, actually, they do log the diaries quite carefully, but they, mu- they all sort of group them together as portions of fruit and vegetables. But the point is that actually the killer colour is yellow. And the interesting thing is other studies on human faces where if you give people a series of pictures and you say you can digitally manipulate these pictures if you want and you can add colour or take colour away to make them look the best for you, it doesn't matter what creed or culture, if you look at black faces, Asian faces, white faces, people all add yellow, which is exactly the same effect that they saw here. And many of these fruits and vegetables will make the skin, because of the carotenoids, look a bit more yellow. So it seems like we have this intrinsic and innate ability to pick up yellowness in skin and we attribute it to healthiness. Isn't yellowness in skin also attributed to jaundice or liver failure? Yeah, that's pretty extreme, though. So I think once you get to that stage, it's pretty obvious that something's amiss because people don't tend to look too right. Thank you very much, Chris. Now, scientists have taken the first steps towards interrogating antimatter to find out more about this mysterious material. It sounds like the stuff of science fiction, but antimatter is a reality. It can be made in the laboratory, and it's even used in medical imaging during things like PET scanning. It is something of an enigma, though. The rules of physics say that there should be at least as much antimatter in the universe as there is normal matter, the matter that we're made from, but scientists can't find it, suggesting either that we've got something wrong in our basic physics or that something else very exciting and important must be going on. The problem isn't trivial to study, though, because when antimatter and normal matter come into contact, they annihilate each other. And now, reporting in the journal Nature, scientists have made a very big step towards developing a way to measure antimatter, and this time they're using microwaves. Chris Smith spoke to CERN scientist Jeffrey Hankst. We're working on the antimatter atom called antihydrogen, the simplest matter or antimatter atom you can imagine, which consists of an antiproton and a positron. We're at CERN in Geneva because we need the particle accelerator to produce the antiprotons, which is the nucleus of antihydrogen atoms. Positrons we get from a radioactive source. We've been working for a long time to learn how to put those two things together to make antihydrogen, and that's what we'd like to study. When you make some antihydrogen, how do you keep it in one place? Because it's not trivial to contain hydrogen in the first place. How do you keep antihydrogen, which will just annihilate if it touches anything, in something that you can study? 
Yes, it's a good question. It's actually easy to contain antiprotons, which have an electric charge, and positrons, which also have an electric charge. But when you put the two together, you get a neutral atom, no charge. In order to contain that, we use very strong magnetic fields. The atom, the antiatom, has a little bit of a magnetic character. So if you put it in a very, very strong and inhomogeneous magnetic field, you can trap it, it's sort of a magnetic bottle. The problem is that in order to hold on to an anti-atom of anti-hydrogen, it has to be very, very cold. In our case, we can hold an atom if it's 0.5 degrees above absolute zero or less. So that's been the challenge uh, that we only recently overcame to hold on to these atoms once they're produced. Is that because if you were to raise the temperature at all, then the atoms would have too much kinetic energy, they'd be moving too fast, and that would make it very difficult to hang on to them. So by cooling them down, you slow them down, and, and it's easier to keep them in that flask. We actually have to produce them cold. So they're produced in the magnetic bottle, and if they're not moving too fast, they stay there. So the whole idea is to start with them cold. We can't cool them down after they're formed. You think of it as a marble rolling in a bowl. If the marble is rolling too fast, it'll go over the lip of the bowl. In our case, the marble, the antihydrogen atom, is produced inside the bowl with some velocity. If that velocity is too high, it just rolls out and annihilates. So the whole trick is to produce it cold in the first place because we don't have any way to cool it down after it's made. And now you know that you can make them and you can keep them in a stable state for a thousand seconds. The question is, how do we study them? When we do this experiment, we have on the average one atom at a time of antihydrogen. That's not a lot. You could never do an experiment with only one atom of matter at a time. So what we do now is, is I mentioned that it's this magnetic interaction that, that holds the atoms in the, the magnetic bottle. Let's go back to the bowl analogy. Think of the atom as a sort of a compass needle on a microscopic scale. If that compass needle is pointing in the correct direction with respect to this magnetic field, it wants to stay in the bowl. If you flip that little compass needle in the opposite direction, it's suddenly as if you put the marble on top of an upturned bowl and it just wants to roll away. So what we do in this experiment is we shine some radiation, some microwaves, onto the trapped atoms. And if you get the frequency of those microwaves exactly right, it'll flip the magnetic direction of the atom. So it goes from wanting to be trapped in this magnetic bowl to wanting to roll out. And when it does roll out, it hits some matter in the walls of our device and annihilates. So we tune our microwaves, make the atom fall out, and then detect that it annihilates. We're very good at detecting that annihilation. On a microscopic scale, it releases a lot of energy, and we can see one atom. What is that actually telling you about the structure of the antihydrogen? Are you able to do the analogous experiment with hydrogen and then say, well, look, it, it interacts with microwaves in exactly the same way? Yes. So what you learn is, for example, how strong is this magnetic character of the particles that make up antihydrogen? And those are fundamental constants. We call them 
the spin and magnetic moment of the particles. We know very, very well the spin or the magnetic moment of the proton and of the, posit of the electron, rather, and also of the positron. It's been measured independently. What we get at with this one is the magnetic size, if you will, of the antiproton. And that's something that isn't known very well today, and only to about a few parts in a thousand, where in atomic physics, a good measurement is one part in 10 to the 15. That's one with 15 zeros after it. So we're just starting to measure this type of atom. But that's the kind of precision that people have on other measurements in, in hydrogen. So we're looking to compare the fundamental constants that characterize antimatter and see if they're the same as the very, very well-measured one in hydrogen. One of the other big outstanding questions is, of course, where all the antimatter has gone in the whole universe. This, if you can work out how to measure antimatter and spot it in a characteristic or fingerprint way, means that you can then turn your looking glass on the universe at large and ask that question, where is all the antimatter? It's not clear that we'll be able to directly address that question. Um, suppose we do find a difference between hydrogen and antihydrogen. It may or may not point in some direction that could help us understand the evolution of the universe. Because there's no theory right now that says what such a difference might look like or how it might manifest itself in a particular measurement. So our philosophy is we have this huge puzzle. Anytime you can get your hands on some antimatter, you kind of have a moral obligation to go and, and look very carefully. So that's what we're doing. If, if there is a difference, it'll be up to some theorists to sort that out. And I'd look forward to that. And we will look forward to hearing about it. That was CERN scientist Jeffrey Hankst talking to Chris Smith. Now, how you type a word could change the way that you emotionally respond to it. And actually, words typed with mainly the right hand seem to make people happier. OK, I've got my keyboard in front of me, Ben, so um, tell me to type something then. OK, how about typing... Uh, let's go for a name. Let's go for Paul. OK, that's right and left. That's a mixture of both hands. It's a mixture of both. How about Fred? That's all left hand. Yes, Left that's hand right. side of the keyboard. Do you feel emotionally different towards either word? I quite like the word Paul, but then I quite like the word Fred as well. And not enormously, but I quite liked typing Paul because I used both hands and I, I got to move around a bit, whereas Fred was a more restricted movement. Not sure. I think I'd have to try a few more. I'm not really sure this class is a, as an objective scientific test anyway. But that's exactly what Carl Jasmine and Daniel Casasanto did uh, in order to write their paper in the journal Psychonomic Bulletin and Review. They devised a set of experiments that were to test people's emotional response to certain words based on the way that they're typed. Now, previous research has shown that when you perform a motor action such as typing in a very fluid way, then that leads to positive feelings. So if typing is more fluent with one hand than it is with the other, then that presumably could lead to a bias in emotion towards words typed with that particular hand. Now, to test it out, volunteers were asked to rate how positive or negative they felt about a sample of somewhere around 150 words. 
The experiment was done in three languages. It was done in English, Spanish and Dutch, with native speakers for each language. And then there was a second test which included new words and internet acronyms such as LOL. What about words that don't really exist, though? Because how do you disentangle the effect of, like I said, I quite liked Paul. Maybe there's some kind of thing in my brain that I like Paul, and that's rubbing off. How do you disentangle that from the typing effect? Well, this was actually a third test that they did. So once they'd done the first two tests, they looked at the statistical significance of of whether words were rated positively or negatively and compared that to what they called a sort of handedness bias. So if a word had lots of letters that were over on the right-hand side of a QWERTY keyboard rather than the left, then that had a strong right-hand side bias. And they found a statistically significant relationship between this right-hand bias and positive emotional response. The third test that they did, which is exactly what you're alluding to, was where they tried to work out if actually inventing words that they knew had a bias towards one side or the other could allow them to predict what sort of emotional response it would get. And again, a strong statistically significant result that shows that even made-up words that have no prior meaning, that don't mean anything to you in particular, if they were more right-handed than left-handed, then they got a more positive response. The really fascinating thing here is that it applied regardless of whether the volunteers were right or left-handed as well. So it's not to do with your own personal hand it is something to do with that QWERTY keyboard. They also pointed out, and I think this is a very astute step from some scientists, that it could have a marketing impact. And they actually say that people responsible for naming new products, brands and companies might do well to consider the potential advantages of consulting their keyboards and choosing the right name. Naked Scientists is reasonably evenly distributed across, isn't it? So mixture there both sides so you have to be in a sort of balanced mood in order it, to... it does seem that you would bounce around quite a lot on both sides but that's of course why the QWERTY keyboard was invented in the first place so that letters that you're likely to type in sequence would be spread out quite well so we'll have to come up with our new radio program which will be made up with words entirely typable with the right hand but now bringing us more scientific highlights from the week here's Mira Santhalingam with our Naked Scientist News Flash Alien plant species are invading the fringes of Antarctica through seeds brought in by scientists and tourists visiting the region. Stephen Chown from Stellenbosch University searched for seeds attached to the bags, boots and clothing of Antarctic visitors and calculated that 70,000 seeds in total were brought in over a one-year period. Invasive species are already established along the western Antarctic peninsula and it's feared that if the climate warms as predicted, these plants as well as new seeds arriving on the scene could flourish. We cleaned their clothing and we vacuumed their backpacks and we cleaned their boots and we discovered many seeds. So if you were to do the same as a biosecurity measure, what you would do is you would remove those seeds so they would no longer be on this transport pathway and so you would reduce the risks. With reasonably straightforward mitigation mechanisms, we can prevent Antarctica from being invaded to the extent that we see in other systems such as the sub-Antarctic islands. A new virtual human could help personalise medical treatments in the future. By combining height, weight and medical history data with scans and x-rays, engineers have developed a computer programme that can model the cardiovascular system. Ultimately, the aim is to model the entire body, helping clinicians to test and predict non-invasively drugs, treatments and medical procedures before using them.
Alejandro Frangi is the director of the UK's Insignio Institute for Biomedical Imaging and Modelling, which opened this week. It will force us to look holistically into the diseases as opposed to really by specialties as nowadays, to optimise the treatments and make them more patient-specific. Actually think what would be the optimal treatment in a computer and then be able to go to the patient and actually do that treatment knowing that this is the most effective way to treat the patient. Plumes of carbon dioxide released from ants' nests help workers find their way home after they've been out foraging for food. By recreating these plumes, Max Planck Institute for Chemical Ecology scientist Marcus Canarden showed that Tunisian desert ants are up to 75% more successful at locating their nest sites compared with when these plumes aren't present. This suggests that they use this approach to avoid spending too long hunting for home in the oppressive desert heat. They have only a short time window that they can be active during this heat. So they they walk for, let's say, 20 to 30 minutes for food, and then they have to turn back and find the nest as quick as possible. And then they have to search, and at that time, they need to check additional cues, for example, like this nest plume. And finally, chimpanzees have police that step in and break up fights within their social groups. Monitoring chimp behaviour in a range of groups and locations... Carol van Schaik from Zurich University found that although conflict is rare, when fights do arise within a group, a chimp impartial to the situation will step in and ease the tension. And they do this purely to restore peace and stability within the group, rather than for any personal gain. Crucially, gender and social rank were irrelevant to this policing role, and the team suggests this points to the origin of the human moral code and conscience. The roots of human morality do indeed go back to uh, at least our last common ancestor with the chimpanzees, because despite the fact that we cooperate in rather different ways, this kind of community of concern is shared between the two species and therefore very likely to be old and not some uh, invention of Homo sapiens. Many people think that uh, everything is cultural, but it suggests that these kinds of things may go back so deep in time that there's likely to be some kind of biological basis for it. And that study was published this week in the journal PLOS One. Mirasentha Lingam with our Naked Scientist Newsflash. And if you'd like to follow up on any of the stories that we've covered this week, both the transcripts and the references are available on our website at nakedscientists.com forward slash news. And this is The Naked Scientist with me, Ben Valsler, and that was Chris Smith. British scientists recently used satellites to discover a bulging dome of fresh water in the Arctic Ocean. And the odd thing is, it's getting bigger. The lead author of the study was Catherine Giles from the Centre for Polar Observation and Modelling at University College London. Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson caught up with Catherine to find out more about this freshwater dome and why it's important. If you're imagining you're looking down on the Earth over the North Pole and you can see the Arctic Ocean, if you cast your eyes over to Canada, then go north of the Canadian coastline, then you're in the Beaufort Sea. And in the Beaufort Sea, there's a circulation system called the Beaufort Gyre. So that's a rotating dome of water. It rotates in a clockwise direction. And what we've seen from the satellites is that dome increasing in height. The area is about, well, it's over a 1,000 kilometres across. So that's the distance between roughly, say, London to Venice. So it's quite a large area of the Arctic Ocean. And when you say a dome, are we talking like a huge millennium dome, sort of rising of water above the sea surface? I imagine it more like a contact lens rather than a millennium dome. But it's still quite a large amount of water. It's about 
8,000 cubic kilometres of fresh water, which is roughly about 10% of all the fresh water that's stored in the Arctic Ocean. Now, did you have clues that there was this body of fresh water in among a salty ocean? Well, yes. Measurements taken from ships and moorings have shown that there's been an increase in fresh water, say, over the past 15 years or so. But it's really difficult to make measurements in the Arctic because of the cold, dark winters and the ocean itself is covered by a layer of frozen seawater, so it makes it hard for the ships to break through. So this is why the satellite data is really useful. It helps to tie these snapshots of data taken from the ships and from the moorings to give us an idea of the overall picture of how the Arctic Ocean is changing. Now, you were using two European Space Agency satellites, ERS-2 and Envisat. Were they both looking at the saltiness of the ocean or sea surface height in order to work out that, hold on, we've got this enormous amount of freshwater in the Arctic. What these satellites do, we use an instrument on board them called a radar altimeter. And what that does is measure the elevation or the height of a surface. So the data that we're using is actually looking at changes in the sea surface height. And from that, combining it with data from another satellite called GRACE, which measures changes in mass, we can estimate the change in the fresh water. Is there a possibility that this fresh water could flow into other circulatory systems around the Earth? What we've seen in our data is that the fresh water that has been stored over the past 15 years, that the winds seem to be controlling that storage of fresh water. So it's possible if the winds then change direction, then that fresh water could be released out of the Western Arctic to the rest of the Arctic Ocean or beyond. And we're interested in that because changes in freshwater leaving the Arctic Ocean can influence the deep convection in the North Atlantic. Part of the reason that Northern Europe enjoys kind of relatively mild climate in the winter is because of heat transported by currents that are derived from the Gulf Stream. So this circulation system we call the global overturning circulation system, and that's bringing heat from lower latitudes up to the north in the ocean currents and as that water reaches the north it cools it releases its heat to the atmosphere and the cooler water it then sinks and then more water moves up to take its place now this is a density driven circulation the water is sinking because it's more dense so if you then add less dense fresh water from the arctic possibly you could affect that circulation system And in the past, we've seen that an amount of water of a similar size to this 8,000 cubic kilometres may have influenced this convection in the Labrador Sea, which is one of the areas in the North Atlantic where you get this kind of overturning circulation. Whether that had an effect on our climate is something that we don't know. Catherine Giles from the Centre for Polar Observation and Modelling at University College London. You can hear more Planet Earth podcasts and other Planet Earth online resources. Just follow the links on our website at thenakedscientists.com slash planet earth. We return now to our topic of sensors and sensor technology. But rather than sensing a natural system, such as the soil or the atmosphere, we're going to explore the technology needed to see inside a very man-made environment, a jet engine. 
Rolls-Royce engines are regularly inspected to keep them in tip-top condition and running efficiently. The job of getting inside to check them over falls to the on-wing capability team. I met James Kell, who develops the tools, and manager Graham Rigg. Our key challenge really inside an aero engine is the fact that generally the access ports to get inside are very small, sub 9.4 millimetres. The routes through blades and veins uh, are quite torturous sometimes if you want to view something that's, that's non-routine. Also the, the engine runs at very, very high temperatures, so we've got quite a hostile environment as well. So if we wanted to leave something in there permanently to monitor, that's always going to be difficult. So uh, we try and inspect the engine when it's on the ground and when it's cooled down. Why do we need to avoid just taking the engine off, opening it up, stripping it down, checking it all out and then putting it back on? One of the key things we're here for is to keep the engine on wing as long as possible. It's very costly to remove an engine from wing. It's very disruptive to the customer. One of the key things is that um, you know an aircraft has a schedule. It might have 300 people waiting to, to fly out somewhere, and if it's stuck on the ground, then then that's obviously quite serious and quite disruptive. So you know we want that engine in perfect condition so that it can take off on schedule, you know at the right time and keep the customer happy. So how does this on-wing testing using these tiny access ports, how does that fit in with the, the general life of an engine? There is always scheduled maintenance of engines, so they're removed periodically and put through the overhaul facilities where they're stripped down to detail part and completely refurbished. The bit that we're interested in is whilst they're on the wing in between those periods so that we can make sure that the engine is in its optimum operating condition and that we don't cause any delays and that we can actually see inside the engine and monitor the condition of it. What are the sorts of things that we actually need to monitor inside an engine? Um, Generally we're looking at the rotating components, so that would be the compressor blades and the turbine blades and we can inspect those using our, our boroscope equipment. It sounds like you actually have a a lot in common with surgery, and in particular keyhole surgery, where you need to do very delicate procedures through tiny access holes. Can you share some of the technology? A lot of the technology we use is developed from surgery, from the medical industry, and a lot of the companies we use predominantly are medically based. We use boroscope equipment uh, or introscope, so we can actually see through a camera inside the engine and see components that... uh, or rotating components to make sure that they perform uh, as they should. At other times we have to go in and we have to clean things. We look inside oil systems sometimes to make sure there's no carbon. There's the routine areas which are the the gas stream which is turbine and compressor blades and then there's the non-routine things which is where it becomes more surgical and more difficult because the the routes in are always very difficult and we sometimes have to go through pipes and, and other components. With surgery, of course, we can make an incision where we need to in order to go in and access things. With an engine, I guess once it's built and once those access ports have been put in, then you have no choice but to use those. Does this get thought about in in the initial design? Are you pushing to make sure that you'll have the access you need? Yeah, we, we sit in the design meetings and we specify that we would like access to both sides of of each turbine and compressor blade. Now, sometimes, due to the complexity of the the design, that's not always possible, and that's where we have to develop specialist techniques to get into more difficult areas. We do feed into design, and we, we are having more influence as we have more techniques and people can see the importance of what we do. Beyond the the technology borrowed from surgery and dentistry, what have you had to develop in order to, to meet your challenges? I think uh, sometimes it's the, the means of getting there. So we, we have the vision systems, but sometimes it's actually getting something 
into the area that we need to get to. So it's often using specially made guide tubes and uh, bespoke equipment to actually help drive the equipment to where it needs to go. So when there isn't a, a tool that already exists, you're forced to develop a new one and actually build something that fits the situation. Yeah, and I think that's the beauty of the job, really, that we're given the problem. We go to a training engine and we, we look at the access, we work out how we're going to do it, we make prototype tooling, obviously see if it works in the engine. If it does, then we train teams up to go out and deliver the service. James, your job is more on the, the R&D side of this, actually developing the new tools. What sorts of challenges do you face? It's similar to Graham in, in the fact that we've still got the same environment that we're looking at, but it's my job really to monitor uh, the technology that's out there to start with. If we've already got something that's almost developed and it's not quite to our needs, we can maybe modify it so that we can use it in, in the same environment. So that means I'm looking at things like medical conferences and, and sort of journals for that kind of thing, and also robotics and conferences and journals and that as well. It seems like you have the full range of, of the world of science and engineering to pick from in order to find the right tool yeah the, the idea in a, in a way is to try and i, I guess maybe in, in 50 years the idea would be you'd be able to miniaturize the whole of the uh, maintenance uh, overhaul facility and be able to do all of those things whilst the engine is still intact obviously that's quite a way ahead and there's always going to be some things that we can't do whilst the engine's still in one piece but i think the idea is really to to look at the things that are out there and develop those things so that they can be used so there's all sorts of things that we are trying to use and laser technology is one of those uh, areas that we're investigating quite heavily and also robotic equipment so the idea is to try and brush your teeth when you're in the upstairs bathroom if you're stood at the at the letterbox outside so how does the process work graham would say to you i need to find a way of getting to this particular component how do you then step into action yeah, there's kind of two different ways I might get involved. There's what we'd call me thinking of a, a blue-sky wacky idea, floating it past Graham and seeing whether he thinks it's got merit he's shaking his head at me. The other option, I suppose, is for some problem that we know is coming down the line, for example, in an engine that's being built at the moment but not necessarily in service, where we've got the luxury of perhaps a year or two to actually develop a technique. A good way of thinking of it is we've got a push of technology where I think of a blue sky idea, or we've got a technology pull where people like Graham know there's a problem out in the world and we've got to try and think of a way of solving it. So in the future, what would you hope to see to, to make your life easier, to make these developmental tricks easier? The ultimate thing for us would be an engine that you could you could take apart and still not have to worry about going in through a, a very small hole, which is around 9 millimetres. You could maybe lift off a panel and expose a whole, a whole array of different components. That's a significant design challenge and probably not one that we're going to entertain any time soon. And Graham, what do you see as being the tools of the future that you would really like to see developed? I think James alluded to this already uh, in terms of uh, laser-type technology, uh, miniaturised robotics. I think they're the two key areas that we're, we're looking to sort of invest in and, and develop. Graham Rigg and before him James Kell, both from the on-wing capability team at Rolls-Royce. But now, exploring the need for meteor-sensing technology, here's Hannah Critchlow with our Question of the Week. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from alpha to omega. 
This week, a concerned listener gets in touch with his stratospherically burning question. Hello, Negatitis. I'm Daniel Spain in Tennessee in the United States. And I was wondering, if there were a large object, maybe like a meteorite falling straight down overhead, right out of the sky, and it was hit directly towards me on the ground where I'm standing, what kind of warning would I notice? Would there be an accompanying sound that could warn people on the ground? Or would I not know it until it's too late? Would Daniel receive any warning before being squished? With the answer... My name's Dr Mark Looney, and I've got a PhD in acoustics from Cardiff University. For most of us here on the Earth's surface, the speed of sound is around 340 metres a second, or 750 miles an hour. That's one mile every five seconds. Which is actually not all that fast. It's only about twice the speed of the fastest arrows in archery. Sound is also even slower in colder air, and the air at altitude is both colder and much less abundant. So when the meteoroid, the lump of rock itself, enters the atmosphere 100 kilometres up and becomes a meteor, it will always be too far away to hear. Now it's possible that its electromagnetic waves travelling a million times faster than its sound waves will cause a hissing noise in phones or radios, but even this so-called electrophonic effect is debatable. But Daniel asks not about a meteor, which burns up in the atmosphere, but a meteorite, which actually makes it all the way through the atmosphere to the Earth's surface. Would this give any warning? Sadly, no. It would be travelling at at least 11,000 metres a second, 33 times the speed of sound, far too fast to hear its approach. In fact, we probably wouldn't be able to see it either. Only a tiny fraction of the solar system's asteroids are currently being tracked by just a handful of volunteers worldwide. So unless it reflected the light in just the right way, in a small region of the sky that someone happened to be looking at very carefully, it would almost certainly be too small and too fast to see until it entered the atmosphere just a few seconds before impact. I'm afraid Daniel's final moments would be rather disappointing. Poor Daniel. Mark adds that it is possible that the meteorite will burn up just enough to be decelerated by the atmosphere to subsonic speeds, but that this would leave a meteorite so tiny that getting killed by it would be a bit embarrassing. Passing on to our next question. Hi, this is Brandon from San Francisco. I'm wondering, is there any possible way you could get cancer from someone else? I've heard that Tasmanian devils are suffering from a form of cancer that is spread through biting. Are there any instances of cancers being transmitted in humans in similar ways? For example, from a blood transfusion. If not, is it theoretically possible, or would the immune system somehow respond? So, can you catch cancer? Send your thoughts to chris at thenakedscientists.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, write on our Facebook page, or join in the debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. Thank you very much, Hannah Critchlow, with our question of the week. And that's all we have time for this week. Next week, we're going to shine a spotlight on pathology, and we'll be trying to collect the full set as we explore the science of microbes, viruses and parasites, and how they interact with your immune system. You can email any questions you may have to chris at thenakedscientist.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, or post on our Facebook page. Thanks very much to Ick Mead, Anna Verhoof, Jeff Hankst, Graham Rigg and James Kell for joining us, and to our production team, Mira Senthalingam, Hannah Critchlow and Tom Simpkins. 
The Naked Scientists podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the STFC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more cutting-edge science, join us online at nakedscientists.com. 